Hi, everyone, and welcome to Four Years of Faith, a podcast on Catholicism in college. I'm Kevin Jackson, and I'm joined by my co-host, Mary Joy Kozak. MJ, it's been a while. How's it going? It's been good. It's been good. I've missed our podcast, um, though I haven't had quite the chance to miss you because we've been busy with all of our many other Catholic ministry projects together. Um, but Kevin, how's it feel to be done with classes? Uh, it hasn't really hit me yet. You know, last yesterday was the last day of class, and you know, it just feels like another semester's ending. I, I don't think the whole graduation thing has, has quite hit me yet, and I'm kind of hoping that uh, it doesn't hit me all at once. So trying to keep the emotions at bay a little bit, and uh, so far it's working for me, but how about you? Yeah, no, uh, I definitely share some of those sentiments. Uh, you know, I think I'm at a good point where I've really loved all four of my years here at Georgetown, you know, glad to call it home for the past four years. Uh, but I'm also, like, really excited to see what's going to come next. So I think I'm in a good position in that regard. Um, but in the short term, these next few weeks, I think as seniors are going to be particularly really fun. Agreed. And then we'll both be in New York next year, so we'll be right next door. <laughs> you don't even have to leave me. How about that? <laughs> I'm so lucky. <laughs> so as you said, we've got a lot of great things coming up in our last few weeks, including this podcast and several great shows left to record. So I think our topic should be a good one today and near and dear to your heart as an MSB kid. So our topic today is on the intersection between faith and business. Yeah, so joining us in our conversation about faith and business, we're now eager to welcome in our guest for this week's show, Professor Bob Bees. Bob is a professor of management and founder of the Executive Masters in Leadership Program here at the McDonough School of Business. We are so excited to have him with us on our show today. Professor Bees, welcome to the show. How are you? I'm doing well. I'm, so, I'm glad to be here with you too. Awesome. Thank you again so much for your time. We're looking forward to having a great conversation with you today. So. As MJ mentioned, you serve as a business school professor here at Georgetown. So would you mind giving us just a little brief overview of your background and how you came to be here at Georgetown? Uh, that's a great question. Um, I'll give you the short uh, version of it. Um, I actually um, grew up in Seattle, Washington, which is my hometown. Um, so I'm very passionate about Seattle, as my students know. It's all about Seattle. Um, and I went to the University of Washington undergraduate MBA, and I decided to get a PhD. And so I applied to various different PhD programs and uh, ended up choosing to go to Stanford. So I'm a West Coast kid. Um, today I'm wearing a tie, uh, but normally I don't wear a tie. <laughs> this, is, this is overdressed for West Coast, okay? Um, but then I, my first position was at Northwestern University uh, in Evanston, just north of Chicago. And then I came here in 1990, uh, so I can do the math on that. In fact, when I came here in 1990, uh, where we're sitting right now in the Harare building, you, underneath us used to be the baseball field. Um, so no longer a baseball field, obviously. Um, but I was over McGuire Hall, uh, right connected to Healy and that whole thing. We used to be in Old North, the business school. Um, and then we moved here in June 2009, so we're almost 10 years now. Um, so that's how I got here. And for me to come here, uh, when I left Northwestern, I never thought I would be at a, a Catholic or a Jesuit university, but here I am. And for the type of research I do, I do research on justice or injustice in the workplace, anything to do with values and morals and ethics. Um, this is a safe harbor. Jesuit schools, Jesuit colleges and universities are a safe harbor to explore those issues. It's legitimate scholarly inquiry, which is not necessarily true at other institutions. So for me, I'm in a, in a safe harbor. So it's, it's like coming home. And to be part of a university that's working on its, you know, about 30 years into its third century, uh, it's great to walk the hallways in Healy and realize who was there before. Uh, so for me, I, it's a joy to be here at Georgetown University. 
Well, we're obviously lucky to have you here in Georgetown. So our conversation is about that intersection between, um, you know, morals, values, but then also faith, um, as well as business. And so we think it'd be helpful to potentially get some of your personal perspective. So as a business school professor, you know, engagement with your faith isn't necessarily part of your job description. Um, but for you personally, like in what ways has your faith informed your journey to where you are at this point in your career, and what ways you think about your profession? That's a great question. Um, I have a multi-part answer to this question. Uh, having a PhD, you always have multiple answers uh, to the same question. Uh, probably when I was, I was really attuned into issues around justice and fairness. Um, my mother had a huge influence on me, always paying attention to those people in elementary school, middle school, high school, were somehow marginalized, excluded, pay attention to those people. Uh, so I went to the University of Washington. My, my goal in life was I wanted to become a lawyer. Uh, and I wanted to do the work of social justice. That was the 1960s, you know, and all that sort of stuff. And I wanted to do that, so I thought, I'd go to the business school, uh, get an accounting degree, because that's a good analytical framework to, to get into law school. But I had a professor named Vern Buck, uh, who really changed uh, my life trajectory and got me to see I could support issues of justice in terms of research in the workplace. So I had this interest in values and stuff that he used to call me the keeper of morals and values. That was what he would call me. Um, and so then I, I worked to get the PhD. But when I became a professor, given my research, I always would focus on those issues. But there was a moment in 1986 uh, that really transformed me. Uh, my then fiance, now wife, Susan, um, we were walking in Lincoln Park. We, uh, I live in Evanston, she lived downtown Chicago. And we were walking in Lincoln Park uh, where the zoo is, uh, it's a beautiful part of the city, and I saw all these homeless people there, and it struck me, like, wait a second, homeless people? And at that moment in time, I decided to change how I do all of how I teach. And beginning that year, I taught a course on power and politics, and I told them, I called it the Making a Difference Project, and they had to identify a group that was down and out, disenfranchised, um, uh, disengaged in the community, and they had to work on their behalf. So for me, it was about how did I translate my belief that there's something just not right? How do I do the work of justice? But translate it into the classroom experience. It's a powerful learning experience. When you spend time with people, you elevate their life, you make a difference, you touch people, you're living out your faith. And so for me, I think it's important to him because there's a particularly Jesuit notion that I try to live out. It's about living a life of leadership. How do you integrate all aspects of who you are and how you behave, what you do? Because if you think about the word integrity, it's often construed as, well, it's all about ethics and all. No, it is often in that context. But integrity, how do you integrate all aspects? A truly integrative life, living a life of integrity, all aspects are integrated. So in the spirit of that famous you know, Latin phrase, cura personalis, how do you take care of mind, body, and spirit? And so for me, it's all about mind, body, and spirit, and how do I live out what I believe in and how I do it? Um, and so therefore I have certain inspirational role models, my spiritual heroes, if you will. My favorite spiritual writer, and who's had a big impact uh, going back to my Stanford days, is Thomas Merton, the Trappist monk. Um, he's one of my heroes. But my other spiritual hero who also impacts me is Dorothy Day. For me, those individuals influence how I approach teaching and how I do what I do. Because for me, I try, I, I, I'm mission-driven. Um, and so the question is, what's the mission? Who am I? Why do I do what I do? And charting a way to live that out as best I can. So any students I connect with, uh, parents I connect with, it's all about getting them to realize who they are and how they can unleash all those gifts and talents inside. And that, for me, is how I integrate the faith in what it is I do. Wow, that's amazing. 
You mentioned integration as such a key part of how you understand both your faith and your work. Definitely something that through the course of Mary Joy and I's conversations with past guests has come up a lot. It's this notion that the different areas of our lives aren't separate. We don't go to class and then go to church and then do a sport independent of one another. There's that task of bringing all those things into conversation and hopefully into harmony with one another. Mm -hmm. So I really enjoy what you're saying there about about that integration. So related to that, I, I think faith and business are two things that people often assume can't be in harmony with each other. So would you mind speaking a little bit to that, uh, that kind of perceived incompatibility between faith and business? And you mentioned it a little bit already, but why do you think people assume that those two things are incompatible? Uh, because they probably think that, well, faith is about values and morals and business is not. But that's just a false dichotomy. The reality is business makes decisions all the time. They have morals and values to make decisions on. It may be a very narrow profit metric, a profit standard, but that's a set of morals and values. Okay, Self-interest is a theory of morals and values. Uh, it's not as expansive as uh, the Catholic tradition and faith, but it's still morals and values. So for me, I'll, I'll give you two examples. When I teach a course to the executive MBAs, uh, the title of the course is called Ethical Leadership. And for me, ethics and leadership are not separate, they're integrated. As a leader, anytime you make a choice or make a decision, you create consequences for people. You do. Therefore, by definition, it's in the realm of moral and ethical values. So the question is, what are the different frameworks you use to analyze that? I often tell the executive MBAs, if you want to lead a more ethical, moral life as a leader, and you want to make sure your organization does it, if I can just get you, first off, if you have a, a debate discussion dialogue, as part of the discernment process, as we say here at Georgetown. Um, you, if I can get you just to add the words, is this right? Is this fair? Is it ethical? If I can just get you to ask those questions. I'm willing to live how the conversation ensues, because at least you raise that you have to pay attention to it. Because part of my challenge is, how do you get people to pay attention to those values rather than being sort of, I want them to be fully alive, not you know half dead walking around, you know, assuming. I want to be fully alive and thinking about those choices. But for me, by definition, leadership is an ethical, venture. It's an ethical process because you're making choices that create consequences. The question is, can you make better consequences, make the trade-offs? Uh, how do you live with those? And for me, my approach is, um, it's all, what I call both-and leadership, that you're doing two or more things at the same time. It's not, is it faith or business? It's faith and business. The question is, how do you integrate those? How do you live those out? So it's a false dichotomy. Well, it's either faith or... No, anytime you make a decision, you're reflecting values. The question is, what are those values? And the reality is, as The Economist once said, there are no solutions, only trade-offs. So the question is, what are the trade-offs and you're thinking through the trade-offs? And what are the moral implications? Well, the social implications of those. Because the reality is choices do create social and moral implications. Just creating that awareness is such a powerful thing for a professor or a mentor to do. Uh, I know I can look back on my Georgetown experience and say, those are the people that have helped me the most when they said, be aware of how your choices have consequences for the rest of your life and for other people as well. Let me come back and add to the empowerment conversation yeah. because I'll give another dimension to empowerment. This is particularly true in my Courage and Moral Leadership class, but also true with my Executive Master's in Leadership program for the DC Public School Leaders. You have to be able to impact and influence your environment to become empowered. If you want to change the world, okay? Um, then you've got to understand power and influence skills. Most people feel uncomfortable with that. But true empowerment is I need to understand how to navigate, manage the system, influence others to do good. I mean, Dr. King talked about not being a follower of consensus, but a molder of consensus. Well, to mold consensus, you have to have power and influence skills. You have to know how to think strategically. 
That's why I have in my Courage and Moral Leadership class, I have them watch the movie Selma. It gives you a three-dimensional portrayal of Dr. King, but also you see how you truly understood the levers of power and influence to make a difference. Um, and so for me, part of empowerment is you have to have a skill set to live out, to impact and influence other people. How do you persuade people to show up? How do you persuade people to show up uh, to escape retreat? How do you persuade people to show up to mass? You have to use some interpersonal skills and power and influence. And for me, that's often overlooked. Well, if you want to live out of faith. No, I'm, I'm pretty sure that uh, that person named Jesus was pretty powerful in terms of influencing other people through stories and parables and connecting to people. He understood how to use power and influence. I mean, he may have had that supreme power and influence, the heavenly power and influence, but on a day-to-day -day basis as a human being, he knew how to influence people. So when you look at, and even Pope Francis, if you think about him, he's really how it focuses on the image, the power and influence, who he gets involved, and even who he appoints to become a, in the College of Cardinals, okay? It's about understanding the power gain. Power is not antithetical to ethics. For me, you have to integrate both. You have to understand how do I influence and move people voluntarily to follow? How do I get them to live out their faith? Show them the role models, influence them. So for me, part of empowerment is power and influence skills. That's really interesting. I think when you say power and influence, the first thing that comes to mind for me is, oh, that's kind of manipulative or kind of unethical. Like you can use those things in a very harmful way in some sense. But I think that's a really interesting point that you know, they aren't antithetical, as you said, to ethics, and you can use them in a way that, you know, I think they're, they're necessary skills. Oh, absolutely. No, absolutely right. And, I, and, I, and it's not that using power and influence can take you down the slippery slope to the dark side. It can. But also part of it is becoming more mindful and contemplate about what it is you're doing and why. So much of what we do, we go on autopilot. It's mindless. I want my students, whether it be undergraduates or executives, to be more mindful, think through their thoughts. And if they get anxious, good. Because if you're not anxious, I get concerned. Because when you have to make a big decision that impacts somebody's life, you should be anxious. Am I doing the right thing? And there's ways to do it better. So even, even how you treat people, how you deal with people, whether it be the janitors here in this building, um, and talking to them, they make this building operate too. It's not just faculty. I know there's breaking news to faculty. Um, but the people that make this building operate, how do you treat them? For me, that's how you live out your faith. So often we think about faith in big picture, oh, they're gonna change the world. And we have examples, I, I mentioned Dorothy Day. Big impact on the world. I think it's the everyday. There's, there is the greatness and the extraordinary, but there's the sacred and the everyday. How do you treat people on a day-to-day -day basis? I love that and definitely resonate um, with so many of the things that you said. Uh, so I think someone might say, you know what, Professor Bees is incredible. His classes are unlike any other classes in the business school. But that doesn't account for all the classes. Not all the classes, unfortunately, are like the ones you teach. Some of them are you know, more finance accounting based. Um, so I guess the question is, how do we get everyone, not only students in your classes, but everyone to be able to ask these questions of, am I doing the right thing? Because I think people tend to potentially try not to ask that question because that, like you said, is more difficult. It's more difficult to think about, am I doing the right thing, rather than just to do what they want. That's a great question, Mary Joy. I, I have again, multiple answers to that question. I mean, one way that we're trying to do it in the business school is through the first year seminar experience. Um, there's now gonna be 15 of those this year. When I started doing it, it was nine. The organization we're gonna partner with in the first year seminar in fall 2019 and spring 2020 is Martha's Table. And Martha's Table's got a mission to serve the young people, education, food, reaching out, inclusion in Washington, D.C. So immediately they're stuck with the issue that it is a nonprofit. Nonprofits are businesses. By the way, Georgetown University is a nonprofit. It's also a business. A nonprofit doesn't mean you don't want to make money. Uh, Georgetown makes money. 
one stream of that is called tuition. Thank you very much, Mary Joy and Kevin, for your contribution. Tuition. What's that? Yeah, what's that? <laughs> uh, thank you very much. Um, but they begin to see it there. But I think also there's some new courses being developed. I think we're going to have a new sort of social responsibilities course than whatever it is you took whenever you took it last year or this year. It's going to be different, again, to explore those issues, the impact you have on the world. But I also think it's about the culture. And right now you have, with Dean Paul Almeida, is trying to, to, to push, nudge, this sort of the, the Jesuit ethos and values, how do you get it in? It also has to, it has to be taken uh, seriously at the MBA level by the MBA dean, it has to be taken by the undergraduate dean, has to, both have to take it seriously. But I think he's trying to change the culture. Look, at, if you want to be an accountant, you want to go into finance, you want to go into investment banking or consulting, God bless you, my daughter's a consultant, okay? But you have to understand all those tools you learn, and those are important tools, you still have to think through the implications of your decisions. So I think by Dean Almeida pushing this issue around how do we integrate the Jesuit values, um, or even if we want to make it more about the Ignatian approach to leadership, how do you build that in? There's nothing to say that you can't just add that in to an accounting class or finance class. Okay, you make a decision, here's a net present value. Yes, I took class in accounting and all that. Um, but then you could ask another question. Is it the right thing to do, the fair thing to do, the ethical? I'm just asking you to add questions. You can, you're not changing accounting 101, although I'm sure most undergraduates want to change that in this building. Um, but the issue is, how do you get people to understand that they have consequences? You just add that piece in. It's not hard just to have the conversation. But I think that's how you add it in. But I think it has to be done at the cultural level. That's at the dean level. It has to push it both at the big dean, as we like to say, Dean Almeida, but also the undergraduate and, and the MBA level. But also how we have courses that really make it more salient. And this sort of new social responsibility is not only going to be redefined and redone, it's going to be pushed earlier in the program. Because if, if I like to say that um, leaders are signal senders, so whenever you assign a course, that signals if it's a priority. If it's the last semester of your life, well, that's probably not a priority. If it's a priority, that's probably it's not your first year, but clearly your second year, that's a priority. But also you begin to have, you sensitize people to those sort of conversations, give them the skill set. You have to have the skill set to persuade people to do the right thing, okay? It can't just, oh, it's the right thing. No, how do I persuade them? And I think if we give them, and we're gonna begin doing this, but this is a cultural piece to the business school um, that's changing in a positive way. I think there's so many elements of the Jesuit values that anyone can take away from this. And I think you only become a stronger business person, you know, accountant, this or that, from having these values. I think, like you said, all decisions are decisions where you have to think about ethics and values. And I think by the business school continuing to integrate them only makes students stronger candidates and honestly better people and, and more integrated in their own lives as they live out lives in business and anything else they do. And I think we have the advantage here at Georgetown where we don't have to reinvent the values that you know we want to integrate into our business school or really any of our classes here. We have this kind of really rich tradition, this Ignatian tradition that we can draw from. So it's, I think it's a really useful tool in the sense that we don't have to figure out what works. We know that these values have been working for us for over 200 years now. So it is this really good advantage I think we have as a Catholic and Jesuit school. But let me add to that, because I'm agreeing with you on this. Let us remember this, that the Jesuits were an entrepreneurial startup by three college roommates in Paris, and then it went global. So the history of the Jesuits, it was an entrepreneurial startup. Ignatius uh, of Loyola, Peter Faber, Xavier, Francis Xavier, it was a startup, and it just went global. So there is a business foundation, and by the way, they're in the business of education primarily, I know they have a magazine, I know they do the refugee stuff, but it's primarily an educational system. And so, but it's a business. 
And even within that, we have to make the decisions, which leads me to this issue um, about decision making in the business. I'm trying to do this in the classroom. Uh, Father Ryan Anton's trying to also push this in with the first year seminar, getting our first year students to get it. Um, this notion of discernment. Um, which I think is a much broader, more inclusive way of thinking about decision making. And by discernment, usually it means it's multiple people involved, multiple perspectives, values are part of the conversation. I think that approach, that's what I'm beginning to adopt with my executive master's in leadership program for the DC public school leaders. View the decision making as part of a discernment process. What goes into discernment? And, and there's a spiritual piece to it. Again, it doesn't have to be organized religion, but there's this transformative, larger than self, transcendent. And so the discernment gets you to think bigger. We can talk about the magis in Jesuit terms, uh, glory, greater glory of God in Jesuit terms, but it's notion of bigger thinking. And that's what I think would get people to discern and look, analyze the trade-offs. Is it the right thing? But ultimately, the discernment piece has to come back to the heart. Remember, that's how Ignatius sort of got going. He said, what's your passion? Or as I said, what grabs your heart? What's grabbing it? Follow that. And I think the discernment process more likely to get you to the heart than one of those analytical decision-making things that we learned so well here in the McDonough School of Business. That definitely reminds me of, uh, in our science and spirituality uh, talk as well with uh, Professor McGuire's Zeiss, you know, it was that combination of having both, you know, be able to think with your head and, you know, use data and numbers in order to make informed decisions, but also not ignoring, you know, what you know, we feel called to do and our deep desires. And having that piece of both head and heart, I think, allows us to make the best decisions, um, again, not only for us, but for everyone who's impacted. Let me add to that, Mary Joy. Um, the Registrar Emeritus, John Pierce, who I know quite well, um, he always comes in and does a um, orientation at Georgetown for my executive master leadership for the DC Public School leadership. So uh, John Pierce forgets more about the history of Georgetown than I'll ever know in my life. I mean, he just knows everything. So I came into my students um, a year ago and said, do you know what the motto of Georgetown University is? The motto is utraquoi unum, from two, one. But think about that, faith and reason, heart and head. It's from two, one. It's an issue of integrating the two. I'm not saying you don't use the head. I'm just saying allow the heart to speak too, and how will that inform the choices or even how you look at alternatives. Maybe you're not looking at all the alternatives. And faith will help you identify additional alternatives because isn't the goal to make the best decision. So the more alternatives you have, I know from my course in Imagination Creative, we talk about more alternatives better, then you have to winnow them down, but you want more rather than less. And so for me, Georgetown always is, it's blue and gray. It's faith and reason. It's together. And I think that is the integration and what Georgetown embodies as an institution and what it hopes for not only its students but its faculty and staff to do is to integrate both. Professor Bees, everything you've said has been honestly so insightful and so incredible. I can't wait to listen back to this podcast many times, um, especially as a business student here. MJ, we just know you like to hear your own voice. So that's <laughs> Kevin, wrong. Um, so we like to usually end our podcast with a fun question. So at the beginning, you mentioned that you're from Seattle, mm -hmm. and you went to school, grad school in California. So, you know, you said you're initially a West Coast guy. So I guess the question is, what, especially now that you've been on the East Coast for a while, what do you like more about the East Coast versus the West Coast? Because I know you said you like the West Coast, mm -hmm. but what, what have you found as the biggest plus about living on the East Coast? The biggest plus um, living on the East Coast or in Washington, D.C. area in general, um, I will tell you, as much as I love Seattle, where I grew up in the University of Washington, 
before I went to Stanford. But for me, my family's been here. So for me, this is family. As much as I love going home to Seattle or going to the West Coast, for me, this is home. Uh, and even when I fly into National Airport, and I've lived here since 1990, as I mentioned, I'm still not jaded. When I'm flying in over the Potomac River, I see Georgetown to the left, I see the Lincoln Memorial, I see the Capitol lit up. I'm, I still get goosebumps because this is the nation's capital. And so for me, it's a joy that I'm, I'm sitting at Georgetown, I'm following the tradition of great scholars and great leaders. And so for me, it's, 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 it's a joy to be here each and every day. It's a joy to be here. It's my identity is Washington, D.C. It's the other Washington, not the one I grew up in. But I do love it. I do love Washington, D.C. Well, I think those graduation emotions are starting to hit me after hearing that. that Kevin, you uh, want a tissue? The flight in over the Potomac, that, that gets me every time. Um, Professor Bees, thank you so much for your time. This has been a great conversation. I know for Mary Jo and I, hopefully you've enjoyed it as well. Uh, is I'd like to say it's been a blast. It's been a joy. Uh, Mary Joy, Kevin, you guys are fabulous. Um, it made it easy for me. Thank you so much. Thank you, Professor Bees, and thank you for listening to Four Years of Faith, a podcast on Catholicism in college. I'm Kevin Jackson. And I'm Mary Joy Kozak. We'll see you next time.